You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome those of uh, you who are in the room with us and everybody who's joining online to the Trinity Longroom Hub. This is uh, a talk that we've put on in conjunction with the School of English. Uh, my name is Eve Patton. I am director of the Trinity Longroom Hub, but I'm also a professor in the School of English at Trinity, where my colleagues and I have been very pleased to host for the past few months as a, a distinguished visiting research fellow, Professor Leshek Drong. Um, he is Professor of Humanities in the Institute of Literary Studies at the University of Silesia in Katowice in Poland. Uh, Leszek is also Associate Dean of Research in the Faculty of Humanities there, uh, as well as Vice President of the Polish Association for Irish Studies. Um, Leszek's most recent book was published in 2019. Needless to say, I'm not going to attempt the title in Polish, but uh, it is uh, translated as Troping the Troubles, the Rhetoric of Cultural Memory in Recent Novels from Northern Ireland. Uh, he's also published widely in a number of international uh, journals, including Critique and Studies in Contemporary Fiction. Uh, and his primary research interest, as you'll have gathered, I think already, is in the intersection of Irish studies, cultural memory studies and border studies. His current project that he's been working on at Trinity is Remembering Partitions and Repartitioning Memories in Contemporary Narratives from Northern Ireland and Upper Silesia, uh, looking at the parallels between the two regional remembrance cultures. Um, I think I don't have to tell this audience uh, about the relevance of Leszek's research to several contexts that are, are of, of interest to our researchers at the moment. Uh, first of all, of course, Irish literary and historical studies as we look back and continue to look back at a century since partition in Ireland and the founding of this state. Uh, and also as we continue to focus on the particular landscapes and narratives of Northern Ireland since the advent of the Troubles uh, and of course up to the current crisis caused by the Brexit vote. Um, but we're also interested at the moment in the wider contexts of Europe, particularly this year as we're marking 50 years of Ireland's EU membership and looking to Europe as we've been doing in our Visions of Europe series here in the Hub, uh, looking to Europe in terms of providing analogies, parallels and perhaps even lessons for Ireland and the landscapes we have in terms of partitions, borders and the theme of cultural memory itself. Uh, so Lechek is going to talk for about 40 minutes and then we'll have some time for questions, comments. Please do put these in the chat on your screen and we'll, we'll get to these uh, at the end of the talk. Um, but uh, now let me hand over to our speaker. I'm very pleased to warmly welcome Lechek and invite him to talk today on partition narratives and regions of memory Upper Silesia as a European Nemo region. Thank you very much for that. Uh, let me just switch on my presentation. Okay. And the video mode. I hope that looks okay. Uh, let me begin by saying how grateful I am to Yves Patin uh, for this opportunity. Uh, 
um, for, for being able to address in, in this particular context here in Trinity. Uh, some of the issues that I have researched for the last five months here, but also uh, at the University of Silesia prior to, to, my, to my stay in Dublin. Um, also, I want to thank Eve for, uh, for her generosity, her, her suggestions and help and, and all the support uh, on many other occasions. Uh, now, uh, my current research involves two regions of memory, um, Northern Ireland and Upper Silesia. Today, I will focus mostly on the Silesian part, where there are several brief excursions to Northern Ireland and, and the Republic of Ireland too, to signal potential parallels and illuminate the, the historical context of my discussion of the Silesian partition. Uh, when the results of the Brexit referendum were announced in uh, 2016, uh, the Irish border suddenly received a lot of attention, deservedly so. Uh, we all know what has happened over the last six years, uh, more than six years now, and how contentious the border still is. Uh, okay, let's do it like that. Just a second. All right, this is going to work like that. Uh, we tend to forget, though, uh, that the border has been a bone of contention uh, and a focus of attention for much longer. Uh, and its very establishment in uh, 1922, uh, the, the year of its establishment is contentious too, as a matter of fact, was actually envisaged by the 1920 uh, Government of Ireland Act, which uh, envisaged a partition within the UK, as a matter of fact. And we tend to forget about that when we, um, we trace the history of, of, of the border in Ireland. Um, anyway, it was confirmed by the UK and the Irish uh, Free State in 1925, and though the, the report was, was actually shelved at that time, it was never signed by the representatives of uh, the Irish Free State. The seminal decisions, the seminal events, um, anyway, go back to the early 1920s. Uh, now, one of the most spectacular representations of the logic of bordering in Ireland uh, at that time, um, can be found in a book published much later in 1963. Um, on the left, you can see uh, a still from, from the movie based on Spike Milligan's book. Uh, the title of the book is Pakun, and so was the title of, of, of the movie uh, that, that you can see uh, a still from uh, in, in, in front of you, I hope. Um, now, uh, Pakun by Spike Milligan is an absurdly exaggerated image of a border village uh, and also a skillful rendition of many actual absurdities connected with drawing the red line on the maps of Ireland in late 1924. That's when, when the movie is set and that's when the book is set uh, in, in Pakun. Uh, here you can see the, the, the still showing uh, the representatives of the Boundary Commission um, arriving at the final compromise when it comes to the trajectory of the board, you can see them holding a uh, um, kind of pen uh, which is responsible for making the red mark or the red line, and they are all trying to push and pull um, in the direction that they desire. Uh, and obviously they end up with what is what is a disaster from the point of view of the local people who are forced to live with a border created like that. Uh, the border eventually um, uh, cuts through people's lives, individual households and communal organisms. Uh, the spread line used in cartographic representations of the border uh, is also a telling index of organic violence perpetrated by incompetent surgeons on the body of the land and the bodies and biological integrities of local communities. 
Now, as I said, the Irish border is not really the subject of my talk today. Uh, my main focus is on different borders and boundaries and partitions. And yet I will come back to the partition of Ulster and of Ireland from time to time to indicate possible analogies uh, and suggest that parallels between distant European lands are sometimes described in terms of the outposts or hinterlands of Europe. That's actually a phrase that Glenn Patterson uses. In, in one of his essays, uh, that, that those analogies may be instructive and enlightening. They, they tell us, I believe, a lot about the general logic of partitioning. Um, in the first place, um, I'm going to talk about my own region, uh, a place where I was born and raised uh, and have lived for the last 50, 51 years, more than 51 years, in fact. Its existence has been programmatically and consistently obliterated from the maps of Poland and political maps of Europe as well. Uh, the point that I want to make um, concerns not only um, actual geopolitical borders, but also borders in the mind or memories of those borders that are no longer there. Uh, I want to see how those borders contribute to the constitution of uh, regions of memory. I actually borrowed that phrase from Alan Rigney and, and her recent article on, on regions of memory or Nemo regions. Uh, and I want to see how those regions may be conceptualized in opposition to or perhaps outside the framework of national memories, which is or which seems to be a predominant paradigm in uh, contemporary memory studies. Uh, ultimately, uh, the, my objective is to abandon the discursive logic of nation states and their national memories to focus um, um, what I have already called uh, Nemo regions or regions of, of memory. This paradigm of, of national memory and the focus of, 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 on the na nation state uh, is clearly visible in such recent works as How Nations Remember by James Wirch, for example. Uh, now, to come back to, to the slide and the photographs that you can see uh, here on the right, uh, uh, they are deceptively similar. The one uh, from Pakun, the one uh, above, um, uh, is uh, a cinematic representation of a fictional world. Uh, and we should bear that in mind, I guess. Uh, while the one below is a visual representation of how the new state border in Upper Silesia was actually created, how it was, it, when it was, when it was intro introduced, uh, in 1922 and how it divided a single community. Uh, you can see uh, the, the white line there, um, P stands for Poland, the D stands for Deutschland. So it's a state border which cuts through uh, a single garden in this particular case. Uh, and uh, the photo comes from the Silesian, from the digital Silesian library. Now, uh, let's have a look at another one. Uh, Generally, uh, what I want to offer you here is, is a combination of two perspectives on 20th century history of, of borders and bordering in Upper Silesia, involving border studies and cultural memory studies. So those, those are the two main areas uh, uh, that I try to, to combine um, into a single perspective. Uh, in other words, uh, I'm trying to combine two foci, a, spatial, a spatial focus um, and a temporal focus. Uh, and I will come back to, to that in a moment in the next slide as well. I'm also interested in the fluctuations of collective identities or identifications on a regional level. In other words, I want to privilege the regional and the, and the provincial um, over the national. Uh, that is why I find the historical, cultural and political situation in Northern Ireland, and also up to a point in, in the Republic of Ireland, 
so useful for drawing analogies and making sense of, of differences and discontinuities uh, between various European regions. Uh, the sort of transdisciplinary framework that I want to rely on today involves a number of concepts uh, listed here uh, in, in this uh, slide. Um, um, all those, to varying degrees, of course, uh, may be applied to many, perhaps to most regions of memory, certainly to, to Upper Silesia as a region of, of memory. It's important to bear in mind that regions of memory do not coincide with geographical or do not have to coincide with geographical or political regions represented by political cartography. Partitioning uh, regions of memory uh, requires a completely different sort of cartography, in other words, uh, what I would call an imaginative cultural cartography, uh, also in some cases a narrative cartography perhaps. That approach is clearly inspired by Richard Carney's idea of the fifth province, um, which uh, Carney himself describes as a space of imagination beyond dualisms and contestation, a space of dialogue as well. Um, and it's mentioned for the first time in his editorial to the first issue of the Craneback, uh, published in 1977. Then it re reappears. Uh, in his book, Post-Nationalist Ireland, as well, published in, in, in mid-1990s, I believe. Okay. Uh, let me move on to the next slide. Uh, here, is, here is the combination of the two foci I've already mentioned, uh, two intersecting research areas that I rely on, uh, uh, border studies and memory studies. Uh, within border studies, I'm specifically interested in partition studies and, and when it comes to cultural memory studies, uh, it's the focus on, on collective memory uh, that predominates in, in, in my research in terms of, of my research interests. In recent research, there are more and more indications that those two um, areas are interlinked. And, and over the last two decades, uh, they have started drawing inspiration from each other. Um, there, there are numerous articles which testify to that. One that, that comes to my mind at this point is, is by, by Randy Wittes, published uh, last year, two years ago with a clear focus on how those two um, inspire each other, how those two areas inspire each other. Um, another general point that I want to apply to the intersection of border studies and memory studies is connected with uh, the, the temporal dimension, the historical dimension of borders. Uh, by looking at them through a cultural lens, uh, I see them as stories or narratives. That's, that's a crucial point that uh, um, I will come back to um, in this presentation. <clears throat> but also the identities or the fluctuating in the, the fluctuating identifications of the people who inhabit the morning borderlands may be described in terms of narratives. The metaphor of self as a uh, story is one of the most commonly accepted figures in contemporary philosophy and also uh, contemporary psychology. And that's also true of collective identities, which can be understood as stories or histories. Uh, that is diachronically, basically speaking, rather than us uh, some kind of synchronic, synchronically available essences. Um, and one final uh, point concerning those two intersecting areas, the, the, the stories about the past uh, that reflect who we are, have a performative force. Uh, that's a point that is partly borrowed from uh, Birgit Neumann and her notion of fictions of memory, but also um, I owe uh, that kind of realization to Anne Rigney and her recent publications, uh, which put a lot of stress on the performative dimension of, uh, 
of memories and, and memory narratives of, of various sorts. Um, in other words, uh, uh, those stories um, um, are capable of affecting people's identifications, the, the ideas about who they are, by modifying their understanding of how they uh, think of their past. Does not really matter. Uh, that's, that's, that's an interesting point, uh, which I don't have much time to explore today. But uh, that's just as an aside. Uh, uh, does not really matter whether those stories are true in, in the factual sense or, or exact representations of some uh, objective past. Uh, all right. The next slide. Um, I have already stressed that, but I think it, uh, it's worth uh, quoting Anne Rigney's notion of uh, Nemo regions, the way she describes uh, Nemo regions, uh, and a few other quotations which explain uh, uh, the potential discrepancy between uh, geopolitical regions or, or geographic regions. And uh, those Nemo regions, which Anne Rigney defines in terms of virtual deterritorialized mnemonic formations. Uh, and she says, unlike the borders of nation states, which are linked to clearly defined jurisdictions, cultural borders are never clear cut, open or shut. And there's another point which is actually made in the same book, um, uh, a collection of essays on, on regions of memory. Uh, the, the point is made by Simon Lewis and Jan Nabarzyniak. Uh, regions of memory can be historically conditioned patterns of cultural similarity. That's what I'm specifically interested in when I compare Northern Ireland and, and Upper Silesia. Uh, those could be institutional projects for political integration or imagined constellations of mnemonic solidarity. I like this idea of mnemonic solidarity uh, a lot uh, in, in this particular context uh, uh, as well. Uh, now, uh, having said that, and, and, and I think what I have said so far could be treated as a sort of uh, a general theoretical introduction to, to the issues that I would like to raise uh, in the context of Upper Silesia. Uh, now, uh, to, to illustrate those general points and, and to, to prove that uh, the, the mnemonic environment in Upper Silesia is quite complex, I want to offer you a brief discussion of a particular situation, which, which will hopefully illustrate some uh, paradoxes of Nemo regions as well. Uh, what you can see here, right in the middle, uh, the, the, the photograph in the middle, uh, uh, th this is a kind of temporary lieu de mémoire, uh, the, the, the phrase comes from Pierre Nora, uh, obviously, um, or a commemorative installation, in this particular case commemorating Polish independence gained in 1918. You can see that the dates here, um, the, the colors are also supposed to reflect uh, Polish national colors, the, the flag of Poland as well. Uh, um, and in this particular case, uh, the, the, the thing about this installation is that it was erected right, out, right outside my window uh, in Tychy, uh, a mid-sized town in the south of Poland, in the region known to historians as, surprise, surprise, Upper Silesia. Uh, in 1918, the year when Poland gained independence, Upper Silesia was still part of the German Empire and was to maintain that status for the next uh, three or four years to come. Uh, most of the people who lived in Tychy, which was called Tychau at that time, uh, and in neighboring uh, towns, cities and villages, either considered themselves German or Prussian perhaps, or never thought of themselves as belonging to a nation state at all. Uh, most of the people, I'm not saying that every single person there, uh, considered themselves Prussian or um, a or had that kind of a national uh, 
um, attitude to, 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 to uh, national loyalties. But anyway, uh, most of the people thought of themselves along those lines, and that clearly emerges from the results of the plebiscite that I'm going to, to discuss in a moment. Now, to attach a historical, highly symbolic significance to a place like that, uh, in the context of Polish centenary celebrations, uh, celebrated in, in uh, 2018, is rather tricky. Um, it also begs the question whether those who identify with the region um, were entitled to celebrate the centenary of independence in 2018. Finally, uh, it's an installation uh, that many descendants of those who lived there at the beginning of the 20th century um, may find deceptive and, and basically false. Uh, it falsifies the historic narrative that they may identify with, replacing it with the overarching national one, uh, kind of hegemonic uh, uh, narrative that claims for itself parallel homogenous transformations all over the territory of, of 20th century Poland, what is now the territory of, of, of Poland. Um, uh, quite honestly, I was puzzled to see the, the, the installation outside my window. You see, a large part of my family comes from, um, the, from the region, has been connected with its history and political vicissitudes in, in the 20th century. Two of my great-grandfathers fought in the Civil War, uh, sometimes called uh, Silesian uprisings, um, and the civil war, uh, which accelerated the partition of Upper Silesia between Poland and Germany in, in 1922 and eventually executed in 1922. Um, significantly, they fought on two opposing sides. If that reminds you of the civil war in Ireland, uh, well, I can assure you that lots of parallels and analogies to be quarried from early 20th century uh, history in, in Central Europe or Central Europe. Uh, now, just a few words about Upper Silesia as a memory region. One of the most striking things uh, about Upper Silesia in the 20th century is that its territory is like shifting sands. Uh, with all the borders undergoing radical transformations, being moved, uh, replaced by different ones, uh, added where they make no sense whatsoever, or removed for no apparent reason. Um, entire Upper Silesia might be described as borderlands with highly unpredictable borders. Um, another term that you can see, I'm, well, I'm, I'm going to jump to and throw, uh, but uh, I would like to focus on creolization now. And, uh, uh, and there's another related term, pigeonization. Uh, and this notion, this, this term uh, is mostly used to describe the evolution of the Silesian language. Uh, its absorption of whatever lies across uh, some uh, borders, sometimes those are imaginary borders only. Uh, and another term that fits the bill here is hybridity. It's, it's mentioned in the slide as well, uh, alongside transculturality. Um, and again, it's a cliche to say that there is no ethnically pure Silesian nation or race. Uh, but uh, interestingly, uh, most Silesians are happy to embrace that. Uh, and uh, they compose their regional narrative like a patchwork story uh, with tributaries uh, flowing from various directions. In other words, uh, uh, Silesian culture is highly absorptive. Uh, that's, that's one of the defining qualities of, of this culture. Um, another term uh, th that is used here alongside creolization is miscegenation. And this is uh, a common theme in Silesian jokes, uh, much local discourse being founded on the opposition between us and them um, uh, Hanese and Gorole, those are Silesian terms, 
which means basically locals and outsiders. Uh, and the actual joke is that within our local community, we can never agree who can be lawfully identified as a local. Uh, so uh, we all believe that we are the only uh, rightful uh, possessors of this Silesian identity, but uh, others are wrong about their own assumptions and claims uh, to, 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 uh, to that title. Uh, okay. Um, now, um, one final point I want to make here concerns regional literatures and different approaches uh, to what many critics and literary historians call Upper Silesian literature. Uh, I'd rather use the plural Upper Silesian literatures. Uh, and it's my claim, uh, again, that there's no Silesian literature, uh, no single Silesian literature, because there are no objective criteria for distinguishing between what belongs to the canon or not and how to construct the canon. The, the, we've had those canon debates for the last two decades at least, uh, and, uh, and there seems to be no compromise there. Uh, there's a long list of questions that I often ask myself uh, in, in this context. Does Silesian literature have to be published in Polish, uh, which is the, the prevalent language in, in Upper Silesia? Uh, or maybe it should be composed exclusively in Silesian. Uh, after all, there are almost uh, more than half a million uh, speakers of, of the Silesian language in the region. How about diaspora writings um, in Czech or German? Uh, those works that are concerned with Upper Silesia. Uh, should Upper Silesian literature be concerned with Silesian history and settings alone? Uh, now, to avoid answering those questions, uh, I'm not going to make bones about that, I want to avoid those, those uh, answers, in fact. I want to focus on, uh, on a subset of writings about Upper Silesia, uh, specifically those that are uh, transcultural, uh, marked by hybridity, uh, and at the same time, specifically concerned with one, one aspect of, upper, of the Upper Silesian past, its relationship with borders and partitions uh, in the 20th century. Uh, here is a visual sample of, uh, of some borders in Upper Silesia, those that have shaped Upper Silesian imaginary to a large extent, at least in the, in the 20th century. Uh, and also those borders have shaped Upper Silesia as a memory region. Um, this is especially true of those borders that no longer exist, but continue to be felt and, and experienced in regional memory and explored in literary works concerned with Upper Silesia. Those are borders that, that linger on uh, from another perspective. We might describe them as zombie borders, perhaps. Uh, now, uh, I don't want to discuss uh, entire history of Upper Silesia, uh, and there's just one uh, theme um, concerning its prehistory, in fact. But, but I think that the, 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 the theme concerned were the Celtic presence, the Celtic presence um, uh, um, in, the, in the second, up, up to fourth centuries before the Kamen era. Uh, in Lower Silesia, but also uh, some, uh, there's some evidence of, of Celtic presence in, in, in Upper Silesia. Uh, that's quite interesting, and uh, that goes into uh, the, the claim that uh, Upper Silesia and generally Silesia, uh, that, that those two have always been um, transcultural, uh, if you want to apply uh, a relatively modern term to um, to, to the, the, the prehistory of, of, of the region. Uh, in the 20th century, especially in its uh, first half, 
two competing nationalisms claimed Upper Silesia for themselves. Uh, I mean, uh, German uh, nationalism and Polish nationalism in the first place. Uh, Poland's claim goes to uh, the Middle Ages, as you can see here. Um, uh, you can have a look at the dates and you will see that uh, um, uh, um, Upper Silesia and Silesia as such uh, um, belongs to uh, Poland, uh, to the, the, the Polish uh, uh, kingdom uh, of the Piasts, the Piast kingdom uh, at that time, up till the, the first half of the 14th century, then it became part of, of the Bohemian kingdom, uh, part of its crown lands. Uh, then the Habsburgs took over, then the kingdom of Prussia, Silesia became the Prussian province of, of Silesia, including Upper Silesia. Uh, then the, 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 the German Empire, um, which uh, continues to hold a uh, part of Upper Silesia, the western part of Upper Silesia, up to the beginning of the Second World War. Um, and obviously, uh, when, uh, when uh, the Nazis took over, when the Third Reich took over the, the entire territory of Poland, um, Upper Silesia became part of, uh, of the German province, or what was called the German province of Upper Silesia. Um, and that concluded in 1945, then uh, uh, the Soviets and, and, and Polish communists controlled by the Soviets took over uh, until 1989 uh, and now uh, well, since 1989 till the present moment. So Upper Silesia has been part of, of, uh, um, uh, of Poland, uh, independent Poland uh, um, in, in this respect. Um, uh, now I'm mentioning all those elements just to show you how complex and 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 and, and shifting uh, the borders must have been in, in Upper Silesia, which is part of Silesia, the division into Lower Silesia and Upper Silesia actually goes back to to the Middle Ages. Uh, but uh, if we focus on Upper Silesia alone, uh, um, the, the the borders kept shifting and uh, uh, national loyalties have also uh, kept uh, shifting, uh, which makes uh, Upper Silesians, uh, I mean, some people claim that Upper Silesians are actually um, uh, nationally indifferent or have always been nationally indifferent, certainly in, in the 20th century. Uh, but when you um, have a look at uh, those, all those shifts and transformations uh, and, and, and then changes of, of loyalty, national loyalty and declarations of, of nationality, uh, which I'm going to, to discuss at some length in a moment, uh, uh, it might be easier to understand why uh, Upper Silesians uh, approach the issues of national loyalty with uh, a, a, a pinch of salt, perhaps with a touch of skepticism. Uh, now, uh, what I would like to discuss right now, I hope we still have time for that, okay, uh, is the plebiscite, um, um, which was one of the most important events in uh, recent history, 20th century uh, history of uh, um, uh, Upper Silesia. Uh, and what clearly transpires from this whirlwind of historical and political changes um, in, in Upper Silesia is that it's undergone, um, as I said, numerous transitions and shifts of loyalty. Its boundaries have often changed shape as well, um, also in, in, in the 20th century. At the beginning of the 20th century, in 1918, to be uh, more exact, it was convenient for Poland and also the Allied powers, the winners of, of uh, the Great War, um, to isolate part of Silesia and also isolate part of Upper Silesia, um, um, to, to argue that its balanced population could belong either to Germany or to Poland. And that became the pre-plebiscite area. Actually, it was uh, the, the area uh, that was uh, subject to the plebiscite. So not 
not the entirety of, of Upper Silesia, but just part of it, uh, the most substantial part. But then again, uh, a, a certain artificial border had to be created to uh, allow people to express their preference. Uh, and I'm going to talk about those preferences in a moment. Uh, because uh, the ballot was was quite interesting uh, in in some respects. Uh, now, uh, as I have just said, isolating Upper Silesia as a region, uh, as a new region uh, with clear-cut pre-plebiscite boundaries, was necessary for partition negotiations and eventual settlement. Um, what, what is particularly significant is that Upper Silesians themselves were not involved in those negotiations. Now, the settlement in the form of, of the partition uh, was imposed from outside uh, by the League of Nations. Originally, it was subject to, uh, to discussions during the Versailles Peace Conference in Paris. But then when it was over, uh, Geneva took over the, the, the League of Nations, which was founded in, in 1920, um, uh, was left with uh, the, the decision how to divide Upper Silesia, which part should go to Germany and which part should go to Poland. Uh, and apparently, there was a young French politician by the name of Jean Monnet um, who suggested the exact trajectory of, of, of the red line, which became the new state border in Upper Silesia. The same Jean Monnet, who was one of the founding fathers of the European Union in the 1950s. Um, and here you can see in the, in the photographs, you can see some of the consequences of uh, determining and de delineating uh, the border uh, in Upper Silesia without actually being there and, uh, uh, you know, um, without facing the consequences of, of those divisions. The, the white lines in the pictures uh, uh, show you how uh, um, individual households were divided, roads, uh, you know, even a single well is divided here in, in one of the pictures that you can see uh, uh, on the left. Uh, so uh, a ridiculous distribution of the territories occurred, uh, but uh, it became a new st state border for 17 years. Uh, the decision, uh, okay, if I may move on to the next slide. Uh, the decision um, about the division of Upper Silesia was taken despite the results of the plebiscite which you can see here, um, uh, and uh, uh, when you think of, of the results of the plebiscite and the, the specific votes cast by uh, individual locations, by, by particular towns and cities and, and rural areas, you realize that uh, no clean cut, that's a, that's a term that uh, Audra Wilson used for the first time, I believe, it's also used uh, um, by Brendan O'Leary in his uh, very insightful discussion of, of partitions. Uh, uh, it wasn't. It was impossible to make a clean cut like that. In fact, uh, because of uh, urban areas, most towns and, and cities in this pre-plebiscite area uh, voted almost um, uh, unanimously, or at least in, in the vast majority, for Germany. Uh, now, the surrounding areas, mostly rural areas, voted for Poland. So there was no way to, to draw a, a red line like, uh, you know, uh, when you divide uh, um, Indian territory and Pakistani territory. Again, the, 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 this one of the most famous partitions of the 20th century in the Indian subcontinent was not an easy thing to do. Uh, and again, there was no way to, to make a clean cut like that uh, there, but it was even more complicated, I guess, in, in Upper Silesia. 
by the way, um, uh, the plebiscite, which was held on, on March uh, the 20th, uh, 1921, um, uh, inspired uh, some of the negotiations in Ireland when the, the representatives of the Irish Free State uh, opted for a plebiscite like that. And they even quoted the example of Upper Silesia when they discussed this option with uh, the, 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 the UK representatives. Uh, but eventually, as, as, as we all know, that, ne that never happened. And there was no plebiscite to determine whether um, borderland areas um, north of, of, of uh, county uh, borders or south of the county borders um, should should have a vote, uh, should have a say in uh, where they will uh, uh, belong to. Now, as you can see, uh, uh, almost 60% of all those who are entitled to vote uh, voted for Germany. Uh, more than a little bit, uh, more than 40% are voted for Poland. Uh, and those were the only two options available to those who took part in, in the plebiscite. Uh, those people were upper Silesians. Uh, in a sense, the plebiscite turned them into either Germans or, or, or Polish people, uh, because the, 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 the two options and the division uh, that followed as a consequence of the plebiscite uh, and the decisions taken in Geneva um, were based on this bipartite division, this binary, binary division. There was no third option. Uh, you can vote for Upper Silesia, even though there were lots of people, uh, hundreds of thousands of people in Upper Silesia, uh, who suggested that there should be an independent Upper Silesian state formed at that time. Um, they actually appealed to Woodrow Wilson, to the American uh, politicians uh, uh, taking part in, in, in the Versailles Peace uh, Conference uh, at that time, but uh, it was in vain, uh, which again might remind you of the situation uh, uh, with Ireland at that time. Um, uh, Ireland had no official delegation um, uh, in Paris at that time, so um, uh, the only option left uh, uh, for, for, for the Irish was to start the, the War of Independence um, in, in, in 19. Um, in, in, in right after after the, the, the Great War, uh, the turnout um, for the plebiscite was almost was almost 1.2 million uh, people. Practically everyone who was entitled to vote took part in, in the plebiscite, even though lots of people were unhappy with the, the options that they had at their disposal uh, at that time. Uh, now, I would like to take a closer look at uh, a couple of uh, passages, extracts from, from recent uh, Silesian uh, fiction and non-fiction alike, uh, to see how uh, the, the border that was created in 1921 and then in 1922 um, uh, is reflected in contemporary uh, memory of, of the past. Um, in, the, um, in the discourses which revisit the past, the border which is no longer there in Upper Silesia, but it's still remembered. It lingers on as uh, a persistent border, uh, if you like. Uh, and uh, one of the most famous, uh, one of the most spectacular passages comes from a very popular book uh, awarded in Poland. Um, the book received uh, one of the most prestigious literary awards in Poland a couple of years ago. Uh, it's called Kaish, which literally means somewhere. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a Silesian word. Uh, it was written by Zbigniew Rokita in, in 1920. Sorry, in 2020, but it goes back to, to the, the events that uh, took place in Upper Silesia in the 1920s. 
uh, let's have a look at, at the passage, and, and then I will say a few words about uh, the, its relevance for, for uh, contemporary purposes. The border, which in theory separates the Germanic element from the Slavonic element, has in practice been established in a ridiculous way. It cuts a living border in two. The allied powers follow in the footsteps of the biblical King Solomon. Uh, and the king said, fetch me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. But in 1922, no mother stopped the blow that fell upon Silesia. Now, this idea of uh, using um, an analogy with the biblical story of, of King Solomon is, is quite striking, but it does occur, occur in, in uh, some contexts connected with uh, the partition in Ireland as well. Uh, I've come across passages which uh, also reference King Solomon and this horrible decision, this, this uh, toughest decision that, that you can possibly imagine of, of dividing uh, a living child in, in two. Uh, now, another thing that, that might strike you here about this passage is that uh, it's, uh, it was published in 2020, but it's written in the, in the present tense. It's like this memory of what happened uh, almost 100 years ago, or from our perspective, more than 100 years ago, is still there, quite alive. Uh, and it exerts this powerful influence on the imagination of, of, of the writers of the people who, who live in, in Upper Silesia. And the same thing might strike you about another passage, which comes from um, a recent novel, uh, probably the most important contemporary work concerned with Upper Silesian memory uh, and recent history, uh, in which time seems to be immobilized. Uh, um, there are lots of temporal perspectives, but they are sort of telescoped into, into one. Um, it's like time is uh, subjected to close examination from some God's eye view. Um, uh, and and, and that's, that's also what you might find striking about this, this particular passage. Uh, the, the novel is called Drak, which, which is a, a Salesian word for a dragon but also for a kite, or it could be used uh, to reprimand a naughty child as well. Um, just goes into uh, show you how strange Silesians are when they call their children dragons. Right? Uh, at the same time, though, 17 years later, uh, that is in uh, 2014, uh, Nikodem, oh, I'm sorry, I don't see the whole uh, quote here in, in my uh, presentation, but I can see it there. Okay. Nikodem drives his car to Katowice. He enters the A4 thoroughfare. Twice he cuts across the border, which will appear in Silesia in 1922, briefly, for 17 years. And then it will be gone, just as it had never existed before. And yet it's going to stay within those people for whom the 17 years of its existence were of paramount importance, right? So it's, the, the passage is written from the point of view of, of uh, the protagonist by the name of Nikodem, uh, and it's 2014, and yet uh, uh, the, the border is not there yet uh, because he retraces uh, its existence, its emergence of circumstances which, are, uh, which um, uh, conspired to its emergence uh, um, in, in his imagination. Uh, and it will stay in the people, within those people, in, in their memory, perhaps, for, for many years to come. 
uh, when it's long gone. Uh, and uh, uh, well, technically speaking, it was gone in 1939 um, when um, uh, the Third Reich took over the entire territory of, of Upper Silesia. Um, one final passage, uh, one final excerpt uh, from a book which uh, does not focus so much on, uh, on the partition, but it shows divisions and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, transformations of national loyalties um, in Upper Silesia, <coughs> excuse me, uh, right in, in the aftermath of, uh, of the Second World War. Actually, uh, when the, the Second World War was still on in January 1945, when the Soviets entered uh, the territory of, of Upper Silesia, and they were followed by the Polish communists, and then the, there was a huge influx of, of newcomers from uh, ex-police, in fact, from uh, former Polish borderlands, Patrick will, will know what I'm talking about, the people who lived in uh, former Poland, the pre-war Poland, but they were then forced to change their, their homes, to, to move locations from, uh, from those eastern borderlands because the Soviets took over those, those territories. And those ex-police were forced to settle down in Upper Silesia in many Upper Silesians, uh, Silesian towns and, and, and cities. Now, uh, um, the, the protagonist here in this passage, her name is Maria. Um, uh, she's uh, uh, what we might describe as uh, um, uh, an uh, autochthon, uh, it's a term mm -hmm. that I borrowed from Professor Tomasz Kamuzela. Uh, and uh, um, she's uh, forced to change her name and also sign a declaration of nationality. Um, uh, she's uh, the, the, the passage uh, illustrates the situation when uh, she's uh, in an office uh, uh, in January 1945 and uh, she faces a very difficult decision um, in this context. Uh, she was considering what to do. If she signs the document, her children will be Polish and Paul, that's her husband, will never forgive her. He fought in, in the German army uh, during World War II, like many Upper Silesians. If she leaves for Germany and he comes back here, what will he do by himself? She was supposed to wait for him here after all. Her father and mother will come back to this place. Should she wait for them or leave? If she leaves, uh, she will become a German woman and the children will be German, but they may never see their own folk again. How was she supposed to set out with the winter so severe and the frost all over the place and her being so far along soon to give birth? Isn't it all the same what they will put in the paperwork? Besides, you are who you are, no matter what the, the paperwork says. Uh, it's a very touching uh, uh, passage, which comes from a novel. Uh, the novel actually reads like memoirs, uh, uh, and uh, and it's uh, it was originally it was published under a pseudonym uh, Helena Buchner in um, in two thousand and six. Um, it was later revealed who, who the actual author uh, was. Now uh, I know that. Uh, uh, I should be trying to the end of this presentation. So uh, by way of, of conclusion, uh, just, just a few words. Uh, um, what many contemporary writings and other artistic and political articulations attest to is that uh, the Upper Silesians who identify with their region of memory and its pre-World War II history wants to have their true history acknowledged and recognized also on a national level. Uh, the voices are powerful reminders that there is more to local history than national master narratives, what um, Anne Rigney describes in terms of ethnically homogenous national imaginaries. 
which I hardly ever happy with uh, subversive, nationally volatile uh, elements um, in a different context. Um, uh, uh, Guy Bainer, uh, supreme historian of, of, of Ireland, uh, describes those um, nationally volatile elements, those subversive elements as non-compliant memories. Uh, those Silesian writings published in Polish, uh, all those passages that I have discussed uh, so far uh, were published in Polish. And the authors want the Silesian subaltern to be able to speak to all those who are ignorant of the geopolitical harm and cartographic injustice perpetrated in the name of an easily manageable homogenous uh, nation state. To speak meaningfully um, and and effect any healing of the past, it's necessary to revisit the lines drawn uh, in or on the land, and more importantly, in the minds of the people, uh, of many people, and weigh their actual significance for, for the present. Uh, here you can see, by way of summing up, you can see the, the, the most important points that I have tried to make uh, to, to, during this presentation. Uh, and uh, just as a reminder of, of, of the two uh, crucial uh, claims that, that I have made, uh, uh, I have argued for a shift of focus from national memories and memory cultures to regional or subaltern memories. This, this is, I believe, what is happening these days. Uh, and the book um, that I quoted from, the book about regions of memory, is, is evidence of that. And also uh, a redescription of Upper Silesia as a deterritorialized region of memory, that rather than a historical territory with geopolitical borders. Uh, I, I would like to do both, in fact, but uh, I think that this idea of, of regions of memory is much more important here. Okay, that's, that's all uh, that, that I uh, wanted to discuss today. Uh, I'm, I'll be happy to, to answer questions that, that you might have. And, uh, I suppose I should stop the video and leave the presentation, right? Okay, stop sharing. We'll continue the conversation, but we're, we're going to close the, uh, the online uh, element now, but with my thanks to everyone who's joined us, and particularly to those of you who've shown such informed interest and contributed material and, and questions. Uh, I hope we can revisit this topic because clearly there's great interest and we have such expertise uh, with Leszek visiting us at the moment. So thank you all again. Uh, enjoy the rest of the day. Uh, and uh, Leszek, thank you again for, uh, for being with us and for sharing your material with us. And we hope that we can, as I say, come back to this topic and, and take more time on it because it's tremendously interesting. So many thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you.